Hello, I'm Eddie Merckx. Welcome to the VeloCast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the VeloCast analysis of the 2016 Tour de France. Unless there's any desire among the listenership for joining myself to perform acoustic guitar renditions of popular hits of the day, this could very well be a very, very short show. Which in itself would be hugely ironic given how long today's stage 3 from Granville to Angers actually felt to watch. Indeed, the peloton could have been running an experiment to see how slowly they could ride without falling off. When they'd finished their self-imposed 220km neutralised zone, the riders finally got round to making a race of it and it was Mark Cavendish taking his second win of this year's tour by narrowly beating a lunging Andre Greipel into second place. I swear to God, I swear to God, about an hour before the finish we had a wee moto shot where the moto went in quite close to the bunch and all you could hear were lots of wee voices going, Are we nearly there yet, Dad? It has, I mean, it comes to something when you get, you know, the, the the traditional early stage shots of the peloton where they're still laughing and joking with each other. There's a wee bit of chit-chat here and there. There's someone reaching into back pockets to pull out a gel and winks to the camera. But it comes to something when, at that point, even Tom Dumoulin was turning to the camera and making the <sighs> yawn gesture, and, indicating know- just how tired of it even the peloton were and riders were doing the last day promenade you know promenade rather into paris things where they unclip and pedal with one leg i half expected the shortest rider in the peloton to get off his bike and swap it with the biggest rider in the peloton they were going to slow at one point (laughs) and i just said that i've just finished recording with ashley and you know at one point i've got a gammy hip you know i can't ride a bike just now i reckon i could have kept up and i could have attacked off the front of the bunch I mean, I felt that we had been sitting for about six hours watching the stage and I happened to glance to the the top left-hand corner of the screen and it said 107 kilometres to go. I thought that can't be right. Surely that can't be right. That that's an impossibility. I honestly was expecting about twenty k to go, and we still had a hundred and seven. It was weird today. I mean, it, it wasn't just that it was the traditional dull, flat sprinter stage. Although there was an element mm-hmm. of of that. It it was that they were riding so, so slowly. It almost felt like there was a a protest. In fact, someone got in touch with me via DM to say, is there a protest going on that that I've missed? I was like, no, they're just riding very, very, very piano. Yeah, I mean, the guy in the break at one point looked like he was warming down after a hard training ride as opposed to riding in the Tour de France. Got to be said, though, we got a crack in the last five kilometres. Well, that, that I'm, I'm, I mean, something. I'm, I'm trying to make something of this, mate. I mean, there's not very much to talk about. I was pleased <laughs> to see Tommy Vokler. That's how bored I was. Me, pleased to see Vokler gurning out in the front of the race. And they were going so slowly that when he did decide to try and get up to the breakaway... now. Put your head around this, Scott. You and I have been doing this for six years, seven years together. We've been fans of cycling for God knows how many decades between us. At what point do you look at a sole rider pop out the front of a peloton to try and bridge across to a rider who's five whole minutes, five minutes, you know, five minutes up the road, you see a rider pop from the peloton and you think, 
What an arse he is. He's got five <laughs> minutes to get across. He's never going to do it. I nipped out and made a cup of tea, came back and Vukler had already bridged. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, Armindo Fonseca who, who had gone out in the break very, very early on today. And with 87 kilometres still left to race, uh, Thomas Vukler had basically had enough. And you do have to to salute him and say, well done, Tommy, for, for at least trying to to make something of the stage because it was perfectly clear you saw him just before he went out on the attack gesticulating to the peloton and really really grumpily to say come on enough is enough here and and set off in, in pursuit of the, of the lone breakaway rider who I'm sure by the time Vokla had caught him was very very pleased of, of the company because I don't think even Fonseca thought he'd be out as long as he, he was with still 87 kilometres left to race I don't think he wanted to be out there anymore I think he was bored witless I mean <laughs> Seriously, have you ever been to the fair and they have those slow bike races? Mm-hmm. That's genuinely what it was like because the, you know when the camera cut back and forth, they went to Fonseca at the front pedalling, looking like he was nipping down the shops for a copy of Lequipe and a baguette, and then you know it flipped back to the peloton and they were going two kilometres an hour slower. Mm. You know they averaged thirty kilometres an hour for a huge chunk of the race. Um, I mean, I think I heard Carlton Kirby in in commentary say uh, we still had about 20, 30 kilometres to go. That in the the road books that that you get, it gives you an itinerary for the day and they'll predict the the times that they think the peloton is going to arrive at every single point along along the day's route. And there's three times given what they anticipate being the fastest time, the the time that they'll anticipate it actually will be run raced at and the slowest time. And with 20 kilometres to go, Carlton said, we should have finished five minutes ago, even by the slowest time. Now, I think that perfectly encapsulates just how slowly the peloton were riding today. They needed a sundial. They didn't need a stopwatch. <laughs> I half expected Vercingetorix to pop out of a forest and challenge the Romans. <laughs> Uh, the thing was, uh, um, Andre Greipel was interviewed by Laura Messiger after the stage and she was asked, about, uh, I beg your pardon, she asked him about the go slow and what were the reasons for it. And he said, oh, I think the peloton was uh, was a bit tired. I mean, have they been out in the Raz for the past few nights? It's only stage three, for goodness sake. Yeah, I mean, my, my big worry today is that... Um, Tomorrow is is an equally uninspiring parkour, and tomorrow is the longest stage of the tour. Um, but you know, we'll hear we'll hear some thoughts from you know from on the road at the tour about that uh, later on. Ashley's got some some fairly strong opinions about what's going to happen tonight, and I I think there will be a bee put in a few years. Uh, you've got to say after all that, the one thing that occurred to me when we were thirty k to go is. You know, I said the other day, I thought Greg LeMond had absolutely nailed Mark Cavendish's situation where he said that Cav had got his top-end speed from his track work but might be suffering a wee bit with endurance. And I think that that was a very good analysis of the situation from Greg. And today, when you saw them at such a leisurely pace, you know, essentially a, an easy recovery ride for the vast majority of the race, with 30k to go, I was certain in my head that Cav was going to win. You know, I, I, mm. I said in Twitter, this is playing exactly into Cav's hands. And I really do feel for Andre Greipel because I think Lotto did a brilliant job. 
Uh, they put Greipel where he needed to be. But, you know, Cav was just not going to be denied today. In, in green, albeit borrowed from uh, Petr Sagan. And he's clearly a bit chunky, because did you notice when he was in the yellow jersey, it looked like it was cutting off the blood flow to his arms? <laughs> and, and it was the same today. I mean, that green jersey, you can see he's going to be left with massive marks around his biceps because it's so tight, because it's actually, you know, cut for your standard... Uh, stick insect cyclist and Cav's got a wee bit more muscle in from the track training but if you give somebody with his leg speed his tactical tactical ability and his you know analytical mind a sniff of the line after a, a run-in that's that easy uh, you, you know he's going to win nine times out of ten and so it proved today a brilliant win from the Manxman and you know he's certainly not eased into this tour has he? No definitely not I mean, you, we're talking there about the the jersey cutting into his arms, actually a green skin suit he had on today and it was just as well that he didn't ride for Castorama because he would have looked for all the world like an Oompa Loompa had, <laughs> had that been the case. Uh, did you notice, I mean this is probably the most thing, interesting bit about today's entire stage, did you notice the first thing that Mark Cavendish did as soon as he'd stopped the bike? Did he not have a kale smoothie or something? No, 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 even before that, the first thing he did was take the power meter off the bike and very, very carefully studied the numbers. I mean, that's a guy who's taking every opportunity to prepare for the Olympics this year. Mm -hmm. The numbers totally mattered to him today. And this is something that actually I think will reflect on the race as we proceed. I'm, I'm convinced he's going to drop out after the Pyrenees because that final week is so hard. It's going to take you know so much out of the legs and the slightly uh, heftier body that he has. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's muscle mass he's put on. You know, he's, he's looking really fit, but he's definitely a bit heavier. So you know, he's, I think he's thinking about the Olympics. But you know, he's a rider who loves this race so much, and he loves the Tour de France, and he. You know, he can't be making it up. You, you can have all the sound bites in the world that you like about it's the best race, but you see the enthusiasm in his face, and he's a guy who wears his heart on his sleeve. So I think he's he's clearly prepping for the Olympics. You're right, and I, I missed that power meter thing, but that's very very telling. But he'll, he'll be living in the moment for this Tour de France because it's a race where you know today he drew even with Bernardino in the the number of stage wins. Um, he's made no secret that he's, he's highlight of the year every single year. So yep, the Olympics are there, but tonight he'll be thinking about just one thing, and that's the fact that he's uh, won his second stage out of three in the Tour de France. So while Cav was celebrating and Andre Greipel was frustrated, I think we can safely say that the other person that we thought would feature very highly in today's sprint finish, Marcel Kittel, really screwed up. And looked very ordinary, actually. I mean, Etix Quickstep were very, very impressive. We saw Tony Martin drilling it. We saw a succession of them drilling it. He looked like he was... Uh, you know, being placed in in the right place in the way that we saw with Greipel. I mean, Greipel was his team did an absolutely perfect job for him, and he said that he was uh, in the wrong gear. But to me, that looks like an excuse after the event. He looked like his legs were going at the usual speed for him. You know, he looked like he was uh, geared correctly. But Kittel was was absolutely nowhere. And I think somebody summed it up by perfectly by saying that you know Marcel Kittel's the new Mark Cavendish. Mm. I mean, I, I worry about Kittel sometimes. He, he seems to have no interest in finishing in anything other than first place, which in a, in a way is, is admirable, but it must be very frustrating for the rest of the team having done all that work. Kittel realises that for whatever reason, he's out of contention for the, the final sprint, so actually just sets up and you think, well, 
if, if there's nothing else, he should be looking to pay back the team by finishing in the best place that he possibly can. Yeah, but I mean, these, these guys run on ego, don't they? And they run on confidence. I mean, we've said it every single tour we've covered. All it'll take is for Marcel Kittle to get a, a win under his belt and he'll be a completely different rider. You know, these guys are like thoroughbred racehorses. And, you know, that confidence is such a big part of what they do. And this year it's Kittle who doesn't have it. You know, in previous years we've seen Greipel be incredibly impressive in the early season. And then when it comes to the biggest race, which counts to him, be very, very ordinary. We've even seen it with Cav. You know, the, the mantra of Cav starting slowly and riding into the race is one that's so ingrained. It's a real surprise to see him do so well early in the race. So Kittle might come round, but for me, he doesn't look like the rider I expected him to be at all. Well, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that he probably should come come round. You're talking about Cavendish pulling out after the Pyrenees, which is a, a, a good shout, and I think one that we will definitely see. But you look back to even just the Giro a month and a half ago with Marcel Kittel doing so, so well right at the start of that. So it's not that he doesn't have the form this year. It's just, I think, circumstances have have gone, gone against him. You know, in that, that first stage... Uh, Mark Cavendish, as we've talked about, was very, very clever in reading the race properly, more experience in racecraft than either Kittle or Greipel. And I, I think, again, today, it was just circumstances played against. I think Kittle's OK in terms of his form. He just needs to to have a bit more self-belief and a bit more ambition about you know where his team are putting him and, and not give up so easily. Hell of a bike throw from Cav today, though. Twenty-two millimeters after, you know, all of those kilometers. That was that was what sprinting was all about. Um, and Kittle wasn't even close enough to watch it. Yeah, <laughs> do you know what I mean? That's that's the real shock. It's Greipel. It was so close that Greipel gave a very half-hearted kind of fist pump, going, "Whoa, I've won!" I think. And uh, Cav refused to take any kind of applause from the crowd until a teammate came up and confirmed after the the judges had looked at the the photo finish that he'd won but 22 millimetres and it was all about that last 50 centimetres and that bike throw that was great great sprinting today from Cavendish and this you know the, the sad thing is as I say that Kittle wasn't even close enough to see it tell you who was close enough to see it though is Peter Sagan in yellow you know again that that this is why he's such a difficult man to beat in the green is even when he was second, as in last year, when you know him becoming second was a real joke, he's already got a stage under his uh, under his belt in this Tour de France, and even with that, every chance he gets, he's taking points. I mean, it, you know, he's such an energetic rider. There's not a hint of complacency or laziness about Sagan riding just now. And as a, you know, as I said, when uh, he won his Tour de Flanders this year, he looks like he's having fun, and that's when he's at his most dangerous. Oh, he was fighting Brian Cockard. All the way for for what would have been third place, Cockard just out, you know, edging him out uh, at the line. But it certainly wasn't a I'm going to give up, you know. And you're right to say this is clearly about hunting for points at every mm. given opportunity. And a lovely quote from him yesterday uh, about you know how how long can he keep the the yellow jersey? And he says, well, I, I don't really care if I lose this one, I've got the green. If I lose the green, I've got the rainbow stripes. So. 
it's it's all it's all good for Peter Sagan. Yeah, I tell you what I missed yesterday because we recorded so soon after the stage was the fact that Jasper Stoyven, as well as that incredibly brave ride that was just pipped at the post, uh, did enough to take the polka dot from Paul Voss. I was delighted for Stoyven. I was actually a wee bit sad for Voss because I thought Voss had had a great day as well. Um, so you know these are the young guys fighting for these jerseys. It's uh, you know we'll see the GC guys come to the fore once we hit the Pyrenees and, and move forward and. I'm really looking forward to the stage and to uh, in the Massif Central. Uh, but, you know, these are, Cavs are a bit of a veteran now, but these are young riders vying for these really important jerseys, and that's a real treat to see. Just speaking of Jasper Stoyven, I don't know if you noticed today, I did retweet it, but uh, Rose Manley, who works for N-Cycle, the, the, um, the Sky-based uh, cycling show, uh, t- uh, took a picture of Jasper Stoyven's shoes this morning. And because he's in the polka dot jersey, and I think this is obviously quite unexpected for Jasper Stuyven to begin going into the leading the King of the Mountains competition. Just a bit. He, he decided he was going to do a bit of DIY decorating to to complete the ensemble. So he's got the, the polka dot jersey uh, and his shoes. He took a, a red felt tip pen to and put, put red dots all over his shoes. He's clearly totally motivated because I didn't realise he's part owner of a chocolate shop in Belgium. Oh, did you not? No, it's... Um, just outside the the town where where he grew up, and yeah. his brother actually, or his uncle, I believe it is, uh, that that runs it. Uh, him and his uncle went into to business together, and the chocolates look amazing. Um, there well, was the, today they looked amazing because they were representations of the the polka dot jersey, the Mayo Apois in chocolate form. Well, they they do kind of special team issue things for uh, the the end of races and and especially of course the, the the Belgian races, the Flandrian races. Him being from that part of the world himself, but uh, no, seriously, uh, if, if you can find it, go look up where, where it is. It's not, as I say, not far from his hometown. If you're in the the area, makes go. a change from Brest and Willie's in Belgian chocolate shops, doesn't it? <laughs> You've been looking in some of the seedier parts of uh, of Bruges, the touristy parts of Bruges. Oh, we were shocked, I, shocked at it. You think of the children. <laughs> exactly that. Now, before we get to the top tens, I think it's time we check in with the nicest man in cycling and indeed Eurosport presenter Ashley House to get his thoughts on today's stage. And we're joined as ever by Ashley House, whose restaurant reservations in his posh five star hotel or three star Michelin restaurant must have gone one thing because that stage finished so late today. Restaurant reservations, you cheeky bugger. I've got a three and a half hour drop. <laughs> on motorways this evening, but I can guarantee that three and a half hours on an auto route in France will be more interesting than however many hours we've just spent watching that turgid stage. I tell you what, though, I mean, I'm old. You and, and Killian, and et cetera, are, are young, but I remember the 80s, and that's exactly what the transition stages and the sprinter stages used to be like then. But, but it's not at all what we expect from a modern Tour de France, is it? No, it's not what we expect. It's also not what we want, John, and it's not... In my opinion, and the opinion of a lot of guys here, it's not what we should be having. You mentioned transition stages. This isn't a transition stage. We're not going from the Pyrenees to the Alps. Plus, it's only day three of the Tour de France. Uh, so the guys can't complain that they're tired yet, particularly, I don't think. Uh, and on t- in the 80s, when it used to happen, I was talking to Greg Lamond earlier on, and he was disagreeing with myself and Juan Antonio a little bit and saying, no, not at all. That's, that's how we used to race in the 80s. You know, but those st- 300 kilometres long, or sometimes there was a time trial in the morning and then an afternoon. It's, it's different. This is, this is day three of the biggest bike race in the world. The world of cycling is here uh, in France every July. 
uproar and the world is watching. And that is not what we're supposed to see. I tell you what surprised me, actually, and I, I know you, you'd kind of filled me in on Juan Antonio's opinions about this before we started recording, is that we didn't see the wildcard teams at least take up, you know, the fight a wee bit. I mean, at least you would think they want to be out there. And, you know, the one guy, let's give him some credit, he was out there for a while. But you would think the other wildcard teams would want to be given their sponsors some uh, exposure on a day like today. Yeah, well, I've got to, I have to say, John, uh, Juan Antonio was absolutely livid today. He was trying to get us actually to phone Christian Prudhomme in the, uh, in the race director's car because as wildcard teams, if, if you're a world tour team, the sponsors are getting exposure, you know, every race. But for the wildcard teams, why are they invited here? They're invited here to make it a race, to get in the breakaway, to go and attack. We saw at the, at the Giro d'Italia, uh, Nippo Villifantini, Every single day, they made the race fast. Now, the rest of the mm-hmm. peloton didn't necessarily like it, but the viewers liked it, certainly, and their sponsors certainly liked it. But seriously, Juan Antonio was shouting, really, no, he was really cross, and he, and he, was, he wanted to, Christian Prudhomme to get on the phones to the director sportif of those invited teams and say, look, you're here to make this a spectacle. That's why you're here. And, and the guys just weren't doing it. I mean, 30-odd kilometers an hour they were going. Uh, you know, yeah, but- there's, a, uh, there's a video going on on Twitter of Lars back with, with one leg up. You know, Tommy Volta was, uh, was, you know, they were sitting around having a chat and having a coffee. It was like they were in a, in, in a pub, you know, sort of early evening before going for fish and chips on a Friday night. It was, I, I think I agree with Brian Cheney. It was, it was in, in many ways disgraceful. I, don't, I know this is going to be controversial and I wonder what other people think, but, you know, it, this is not what the Tour de France is about, especially not on stage three. Well, you and I have talked about my gammy hip, and at one point I reckoned I could have kept up and possibly attacked off the front. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, John, you would have attacked off the front, that's the thing, but none of the others did. And as you said, surely the sponsors would have wanted those teams to, to, you know, to get some exposure. I, I, to be honest with you, I simply don't understand it. I, said to, I did ask... Um, uh, Sean Kelly as well, what he thought. And he, he was, he was with, with myself with Juan Antonio. And I wondered whether the riders were protesting about something, because we've seen that in the past, a go slow. But they weren't. They weren't, they, they weren't protesting about anything. No, I mean, the one thing that I would say is we've talked, uh, you were telling us yesterday how, you know, um, Alberto Contador, for example, looked grey, looked drawn at the end of the stage. I suppose if we're going to make lemonade from lemons, we can say that maybe some active recovery has helped those guys today, and there's some recovery for you know for some high-profile riders who might have been a bit under the weather. That's true, and uh, someone did say to me on Twitter as well. Interestingly, you know, Peter Sagan was on the peloton and wondered why he was there. You know, maybe he was slowing it down. Uh, Alberto did look a bit more comfortable. I can understand that, but. You know, that's fine. That's Tink- Tinkoff might want to do that, but not the other guys. And as we said before, not the wildcard team. But anyway, let's, mo- let's, let's move on. <laughs> I, I, one thing today, I mean, you've got, you've got a lot of driving to do. My big worry now is we've got the longest stage of the, the race tomorrow. Uh, we might see the same again tomorrow. And, you know, I, I fear for your san- sanity and for Juan Antonio's. And I fear actually <laughs> for, you know, the, the sleeping patterns of fans around the world. Yeah, I, I, I think I think tonight Christian Brudon will get on the phone. He, you know, he's not going to want to see that again because we can't be the only people saying it. So tomorrow, hopefully, we'll get more action. I was tempted to give you a day off today, but you, you know, you got in touch and you sounded so angry. I thought we should get you on. I don't think it's going to be the longest podcast of the Tour de France, but thanks as ever for your input. See, I mean, safe driving, Ashley. 
<laughs> no worries. Thanks very much indeed, John. Just, just, just before I go as well, for those of you who didn't see us with um, the Dimension Data guys, you asked me yesterday about the atmosphere within that team. And mm. goodness me, you know, Mark Cavanish, another great sprint today. It was a, a really good finish, actually. But I just want to emphasize what I said yesterday. That Dimension Data team, those guys are so comfortable, so relaxed with each other. They've known each other a long time. They've ridden together a long time, obviously. Uh, but it's a happy, happy place to be. And the bus was surrounded by Eritrean flags and Eritrean fans uh, who were there, of course, for uh, Daniel Tekla-Hymanov. And I think Greg Lamond actually nailed it the other day. I think what we saw today was uh, a Mark Cavendish who benefited from the easy day because his endurance might have suffered a wee bit, but his leg speed was just incredibly impressive due to the track training he's been doing. Yeah, yeah, it really was, wasn't it? um, I've just been talking to a few fans, actually, who I met uh, outside. I mean, fans of uh, Dimension Data, by the way, uh, and cycling fans who I just met outside the Dimension Data bus, and they were saying, it's really interesting, where has Mark Cavendish been for the last couple of years? He's back. Yeah, very impressive. I'll catch you tomorrow, Ashley. Safe trip. All right, thanks very much, guys. Speak to you tomorrow. Take care. Well, I think that's the first time I've ever heard Ashley angry. And he genuinely was angry. Juan Antonio Flesher apparently had steam pouring out of his ears. And, you know, I think Ashley's exactly right. The risk of the same thing happening tomorrow will mean that tonight those wildcard team DSs and some of the bigger team DSs will be getting a very terse phone call from Christian Prudhomme and his team. So the top 10s for today. Mark Cavendish takes the stage ahead of Andre Greipel. In third place was Brian Cocard. In fourth, Peter Sagan. In fifth, Edward Tynes. In sixth, Sandra Holst-Enger. In seventh, Marcel Kittel. Eighth place was Christophe Laporte. In ninth was Daniel McClay. And in tenth was Dylan Gronwegen. No change to the general classification. Peter Sagan still leads ahead of Julian Alaphilippe by 8 seconds. In third is Alejandro Valverde at 10 seconds. In fourth is Chris Froome at 14 seconds, along with fifth place Warren Bargill, sixth place Nairo Quintana, seventh Roman Kreuziger, eighth Tony Gallopan, ninth Fabio Aru, and rounding out the top 10 is Dan Martin. Now, somewhat worryingly, at 232 kilometres, tomorrow's stage four from Sommer to Limoges is even longer than today's. And the options in terms of stage prediction is that it will end like today in a closely fought bunch sprint, or a breakaway group could catch them unawares. Um, I think we're going to see a brunch sprint, um, although I think we're going to see a very active race compared to today uh, for the simple reason that I just detailed after we heard from Ashley. I don't think they'll be allowed to get away with that again today. Um, And a harder race, I think, will bias slightly against Cavendish. I think the easy race today played into his hands completely. So, I mean, I think we're going to see Andre Greipel cross the line first. His team did the job for him today. He did nothing wrong, whatever he says about his gearing. And I think it was the easy day that made the difference for Mark Cavendish. I'm going to go against that, not to say that Mark Cavendish will win tomorrow, although confidence being key, as as the old adage goes, his his tail will very much be up. So it wouldn't surprise me to, to see him certainly contest the sprint but having a look at the the profile just in the last kilometre after the Flom Rouge there's a few hundred metres of perfectly flat and then it, it rises I mean it's only around 50 metres but it's it's a 50 metre rise in the last 
400 metres or so. So it could be a bit of a grind, this one. And I think for that reason, Petr Sagan's going to take it tomorrow. It's not a bad shout. You could also see uh, Cockard, I think, because he was really frustrated he did so badly yesterday. Um, and showed he was motivated today. You know, I don't think he's got the absolute speed of your grapples or your calves, but he was definitely there. So, you know, Dimension Data have been very, very active in this race, and, and Brian Cockard, who quite ho- close to home today, a bit further away tomorrow, but, uh, you know, we, we could well see him perform. There are so many good sprinters there, and the thing about sprinters, as we've seen so often, we're talking about Marcel Kittle looking very ordinary. All he needs is one win. You know, and then suddenly it's Marcel Kittle in, in big capital letters. So uh, I think we're in for we're in for some excitement tomorrow, and hopefully it won't just be excitement in the last fifty meters. <laughs> well, maybe someone who is hoping for for nothing uh, across the two hundred odd kilometers that we've got to to race, and and I, I say race advisedly is uh, Alberto Contador, who must have been very very happy with the go slow today. And I was actually given to wonder whether all. Leg was throwing money around at all the team hotels last night for that go slow to happen. It's entirely possible, but if Ashley House is to be believed we're all wrong and it'll be won by an absolutely furious one, Antonio Flesher, on top of that beautiful titanium Pisoni that he's been riding for the last couple of years when he just gets his bike out and, you know, shows those pesky kids how it's done. Well, thank you for joining us today as a clearly delighted Mark Cavendish took his second win in three stages and we just about managed to stay awake to see it. Join us again tomorrow to see if the Dimension Data Rider can do it again in another edition of The Velocast. <laughs>